This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is today, Wednesday, the 20th of September, and we are sending to you live hot on the heels of the press conference of the Federal Reserve just a few minutes ago, basically. And uh, today we're going to digest the message from the Federal Reserve in great company. And remember that this is an extended version of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. The first 30 minutes will be live for everyone. And after 30 minutes, we will move exclusively to the Real Vision platform for members only. You can use the QR code on the screen on a running basis to join us behind the paywall after 30 minutes. But today I'm joined by one of the best analysts I know on liquidity and central banks, Michael Howell, founder of Cross Border Capital. It's great to see you, Michael. Thank you for joining us here at Real Vision Daily Briefing. Great to be here, Andreas. Great thrill. Thank you. Michael, you watched the uh, press conference from the Federal Reserve just as I did. And um, thankfully, we do not need to spend the next 60 minutes just discussing what, just, what Paul just said. But what are the key takeaways from what you just saw? Is it a Federal Reserve planning on hiking interest rates to a larger extent? Well, I think it was one of the, uh, one of the FOMC uh, meetings or press conferences that you could actually have the sound of because I don't think you learned an awful lot from it. Um, I mean, broadly, I think what they were saying, and they, they pretty much flagged this ahead of, uh, ahead of the FOMC statement, uh, was it's a question of higher for longer. And I think that's the sort of the, the message that's been coming out for several weeks now. And I think it's a pretty decent message. And that's more or less what the markets are pricing in. Look at the way that the, the two-year yield jumped uh, after the press conference. I think that pretty much says it all. And what we've got in terms of the predictions for the next two years is the FOMC on average put, what, 50 basis points on uh, uh, their projections for Fed funds uh, for the long term. So that's, uh, that's, that pretty much says it all. So it's just a message of, uh, you know, stability here, higher for longer. Will there be another rate hike? I, you know, I doubt it. It's possible. Anything's possible. But uh, I would think it's basically keeping rates uh, up at these levels. But Michael, does it even matter whether they hike interest rates one more time ahead of New Year's, or is the long-term message of higher for longer more important for markets here? Well, my view is that what really matters is that sort of forward guidance, if you like. I mean, something that the, the Fed used to emphasize a lot. Uh, they sort of downplayed that, obviously, in the last year or so. But I think the forward guidance is important, and that's the direction that the Fed is pushing us towards now, higher for longer. And I think the other thing that's important is basically uh, flows of liquidity. I mean, that's uh, that, that's my remit. Uh, and at the end of the day, I mean, despite what the Federal Reserve has said today and pretty much despite what they've said over the last 12 months, the reality is that they seem to be targeting money market, money market flows uh, and basically the level of bank reserves. Uh, you know, I've been saying for a long time that, you know, if it's yellow and quacks, it's a duck. And, you know, this thing has been quacking quite a lot for the last 12 months now. If we look at liquidity and the decisions taken by the Federal Reserve over the past, say, three, four quarters, 
What's the connection between the policy rate of the Federal Reserve and liquidity? Are those two connected at all, Michael? Um, to a limited extent. I think you've got, yeah. to, you've got to treat both uh, very separately, I think. I mean, one is that if you look at policy rates, I mean, clearly they're fixing to a large extent the front end of the curve. And then if you start to look at liquidity conditions, the liquidity conditions tend to come in much more at the back end. What they do mm. is they affect term premium. Now, term premium are probably, a, well, they're, they're a very wonkish concept for many investors, but the fact is they're actually critical if you want to understand uh, the long end of the market. And term premium at the moment have been hugely depressed. They are beginning to be elevated and they pose a significant threat to US long-term bond yields. Michael, I, I know you've brought a chart with you today on uh, the term premium in the 10-year bond in the US. And um, I'd like you to go through your thinking on why we see the levels that we do at this juncture and how the Federal Reserve impacts this exact term premium uh, in the 10-year space of the bond yield curve. Yeah, well, if you if you look at that term premium chart, which I think is the, the second one I, mm. I sent you, what that's looking at is the long-term history of the the US term premium. Now, this is on the on the 10-year bond. Now, without being sort of necessarily too complex, what the term premium is basically measuring is the differential that investors require to hold a 10-year bond over the term of the bond. So in other words, it's the difference between the 10-year yield today and what you would expect uh, the coupon to be if you roll it every year for 10 years. So it's that differential. Now, normally that's positive. In other words, the holding duration risk, as it's called, the holding interest rate risk over a 10-year period, investors will be expect to pay a small premium. What you're actually looking at, if you look at that chart, is they're actually paying a whopping great discount. Um, they're, pay they're, they're, uh, they're paying minus 150 basis points. Now, what does that really mean? So what that means is that if you look at rate expectations, and let's assume that the Federal Reserve is true here to its word, and it's not going to change Fed funds over the medium term from current levels, and let's assume that interest rates stay at 5%. But what that would mean is if you add 150 basis points on top of that 5%, you're looking at a 10-year bond of 6.5%. Now, that may be a pretty racy forecast. I don't even, even I don't think it's going to get to those levels. But the direction of change is very important. And that term premium has been depressed, if you look, uh, over the last 10 years, really in the wake of the global financial crisis. Yeah. Now, there are a number of reasons why that uh, term premium has crashed. Uh, it's been a significant boost uh, for bond investors in the sense that yields would have been a lot higher without that. And it's really come through uh, probably two or three major factors. One of them was regulation after the global financial crisis. So things like Basel III, Solvency II for insurance companies basically meant uh, all these institutions worldwide had to hold more safe assets. And safe assets really come down to, at the end of the day, U.S. Treasury bonds. I mean, that's really what most people would accept as a as pristine collateral. So there's been tremendous demand for those bonds. At the same time, what you've had as well is China being a very big buyer of U.S. debt until recently. And this is one of the other factors to throw into the equation. China's had a big appetite for U.S. Treasuries, but it's beginning to lose that appetite actually quite rapidly. So if you look at latest data that came out Monday, uh, last Monday, you will actually see that the Chinese dropped their treasury holdings, I think back to levels of about 2009 or something. I mean, it's a significant drop and it's gonna get lower. 
So you've had one demand knocked out. And then you've had another factor, which is basically uh, the Federal Reserve itself has actually been up to recently buying treasuries. So there's a whole number of things that have actually pushed uh, the demand for treasuries up and caused this term premium to crash. These factors are now unwinding. And on top, just take a look uh, at what's happening to the deficit in the US and the projection for the debt burden on the US. And these are, you know, you can look at the Congressional Budget Office, which is an impartial, uh, you know, non-partisan organization that basically is saying within what, 25, 30 years, the US debt GDP ratio is going to be 200 uh, percent, currently about what, 115, 120 percent. So these are these are big, big numbers. These are, you know, significant challenges to markets. And if you start to get those pressures in the market, the term premium will go back or renormalize to where it should be, which is about zero. Michael, to which extent is this term premium connected or related to the decisions taken by the Fed today and in the quarters ahead? Let's assume that the Federal Reserve is actually serious about pausing here. Could you envisage term premiums increasing in such a pause scenario? Are those two contradicting or does it actually make sense that term premiums increase when the Fed pauses interest rates? Well, traditionally, that's what's happened. And I think the mechanism is, uh, you know, I think one's got to embrace both the Treasury and the Federal Reserve here because the Treasury, uh, you know, clearly influences the supply of coupons into the market. So in other words, notes and bonds and the Federal Reserve is supplying liquidity. And what you tend to find is if you add those together uh, as the pool of safe assets in the system, if the pool of safe assets increases, then investors basically will decrease their demand uh, for uh, you know, for things like government bonds and the term premium will start to rise. So I think there's a there's a very clear connection going on in this in this space. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. If we look at the decision in November and December, the decisions ahead for the Federal Reserve, we know that they're almost on autopilot on the balance sheet policy. Uh, again, today, it doesn't seem like it's the hot topic. Everyone wants to discuss whether the policy rate will be raised by another 25 basis points. But amidst all of this, the, the balance sheet policy remains the same. They're trying to bring down the balance sheet size. But are they truly bringing down the balance sheet size or rather, are they truly bringing down the size of the liquidity pool available for private markets, Michael? Well, in fact, what they're, what they're doing is that uh, they're sort of changing the, their, their goalposts because mm. uh, what used to be the case was that, uh, uh, let's say, uh, QE was spoken about in terms of liquidity. So it was the amount of liquidity that the Federal Reserve was injecting into the system. QT should be the, the counterpoint of that, it should be the reverse. 
So in other words, QT should be liquidity coming out of the system. But it's been very carefully re redefined to basically mean the roll-off of treasury holdings, specifically the roll-off of treasures on the balance sheet. Now, it's true to say that the balance sheet roll-off is continuing, and that more or less is set in stone. But that does not mean that liquidity conditions are moving pari pursue with that. In other words, liquidity conditions are going in a different direction. And what you've seen principally um, you know, since, let's say, September of last year, in other words, about 12 months ago, you've started to see uh, liquidity uh, provision by the Federal Reserve flatline, and then around March of this year, begin to start rising again. And that's that the March rise was triggered by the SVB crisis, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, et cetera. And you've also had, going back to September, the fallout from the British guilt crisis, which I think spooked central banks and treasury officials worldwide and caused them to be a lot more accommodative on liquidity. And the reality you have in financial markets today is that financial markets globally are very fragile. They need central bank support. And the main reason they need central bank support is that they've turned the whole complexion of markets has changed from being new financing mechanisms for capital spending, which is what the textbooks always tell us they, they are, and therefore where interest rates are really important because that represents your cost of capital, uh, but they've turned into refinancing mechanisms where what they're doing is refinancing the huge debt burden we've got. Now, if you look out there, we've got $350 trillion of debt worldwide with an average maturity of about five years, which simple math says, you're going to have to roll over $70 trillion of debt each year, even without the new supply coming on. So these are eye-watering amounts of money. Uh, the US alone, I think, has got to roll and, uh, and raise about $8 trillion next year alone. So, you know, these are daunting challenges. And you need balance sheet capacity among financial intermediaries to do that. And the Federal Reserve basically controls that. So what you should be seeing over the long term is basically a, 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 constant, a constant ratio between the size of the Federal Reserve balance sheet and the stock of debt in the, in the world economy. And when you get interruptions in that ratio, you get financing crises. And all I'd say, look, look back over the last 10 years or even 20 years, and every financial crisis that we can consider has been a refinancing crisis in some mm. form. And that's what it's about. There may be, there will almost certainly be another one, but the Federal, the Federal Reserve and other central banks will come in with, with alacrity. Interestingly enough, the uh, Bank of England on Thursday, when it comes out with its uh, you know, yeah. great decision or whatever, there's a speech which is coinciding with that by Andrew Hawser, who's in charge of uh, markets at the Bank of England, where he's explicitly, his topic is explicitly about the role of central banks in financial stability. And this, yeah. is, what, uh, this is a forefront of central bankers' minds now. It's stability in the, creating stability in the system. But Michael, if we look at the refinancing risks for 2024, given this higher for longer narrative presented by the Federal Reserve again today, probably presented by other central banks tomorrow with a plethora of central bank meetings in Europe, what do you make of the refinancing risks into 2024, given that we do not, at this juncture at least, have the confirmation that rates will be cut into 2024. Yeah, well, I think if you come back to the refinancing risk, I mean, I think you're right to say there are, there are two dimensions there. I mean, one is rates clearly make a, uh, have some impact, uh, but also the size of the balance sheets are also critical. 
Now, where you're seeing the biggest, uh, if you like, contraction in balance sheets is in the eurozone. And I think that's a dangerous policy to run. Uh, but we do know when push comes to shove, there is some rever hasty reversals of these moves. So I think if there are any refinancing problems in Europe, expect to see the ECB uh, row back very quickly on its uh, decisions on contracting the balance sheet. They'll have to put more liquidity into the system. In terms of the Federal Reserve, I mean, let me just be clear. The Federal Reserve may well have undertaken what on paper is a QT policy, and that's its stated aim, clearly. But in terms of the liquidity injections into markets, they've basically been going up. And if you want evidence of that, just look at risk assets. Yeah. Risk assets are highly liquidity sensitive, and they've been going up, particularly you know, looking at tech stocks. Michael, this interview is a part of our Crash or Boom series here at uh, Real Vision. We have this campaign ongoing for a couple of weeks. And I want to play a soundbite for you from a discussion between the founder of Real Vision, Raoul Powell, and Juliette de Clerc, a um, French macroanalyst. And she's arguing that if central banks decide to pause now, even amidst all of the trouble that you've mentioned around refinancing risks, et cetera, for next year, we risk seeing inflation re-accelerating. So let's listen to Juliette and get back to that discussion. I think inflation will be more problematic than currently assumed uh, by central banks, because also because they're not at level of rates uh, that are restrictive yet. So I think they're all sort of like pausing at a level that's not yet restrictive. So they're, they're sort of like pausing, waiting for the past hikes to start feeding through uh, to lower demand. But the problem is when you're pausing at levels that are not restrictive, I think it, you know, you're setting yourself for like uh, policy errors and, and that could be uh, what happens in, in 2020, end of 2023, 2024, e.g., um, you know, inflation, disinflation gets disappointing. This interview with Juliette de Clerc is a part of our Crash or Boom series, and you can go to realvision.com slash crash or boom to find the interview and your good offers right now. Back to you, Michael. Um, if we listen to Juliette here, there's a risk that a pause more or less coordinated by global central banks right now will lead to a re-acceleration of inflation trends, also given what we see in commodity space right now with rising prices in oil, for example. What do you make of that inflation risks amid, amidst all of this uh, discussions, these discussions on, on a pause or not? Well, I think there are, there are several moving parts here, and I, I sort of agree and I, I, and I, I don't agree with what Juliet's saying. Yeah. I think the, you know, the key point is that you know, e economies generally have become a lot less rate sensitive. I mean, I think that's clear. And you could even argue sort of somewhat mischievously that actually the rise in interest rates that we've seen so far has actually been a net stimulus to the economy. For the simple reason, if you look at what's happening to the US corporate sector, for example, uh, corporations have uh, funded a term down the curve at low rates. Okay, they've locked in low rates. And those corporations in the US that are sitting on big cash piles, which we know there are a lot of, are actually investing those at money market rates, uh, very high, you know, very high money market rates. So there's a net positive benefit uh, from, a, if you like, an inverted curve at the moment and rising rates. So I think there's, you know, mischievously, one can actually say that there's <laughs> that the economy may actually be a net beneficiary here. But I think that if you, you know, if you look at the inflation risks going forward, uh, what I would say comes back to a much larger extent in terms of fiscal policy. And yeah. what you've got is, at the moment, a very loose fiscal policy, you know, courtesy of uh, President Biden's programs, 
yeah. infrastructure and green energy, et cetera. Uh, but then you've got other factors that are coming in uh, over the course of the next few years. And those are things like mandatory spending because of aging demographics. So that means Medicare, it means uh, uh, Social Security starts to starts to lift off significantly. Then you've got the defense spending uh, to go on. And, you know, uh, the Congressional Budget Office that I cited earlier on are very pessimistic about the deficit. But their numbers on defense spending are actually quite conservative. I think more realistically, uh, you know, you could see much higher figures. Uh, and that would mean you'll, you would be looking at, you know, significant rises in U.S. debt. That's the more inflationary backdrop. Now, come back to uh, the issue of inflation and what could happen. I think in the near term, there are lots of disinflationary uh, uh, features in the world economy that are pushing inflation lower. Just got to look at producer prices. Uh, you know, look at what's happening in the labor market. If you drill into the labor market in the U.S., uh, the cyclical parts are actually shedding jobs. They're not creating jobs. It's basically, you know, things like uh, public public workers, hospitals, uh, uh, you know, leisure that are starting to pick the jobs up. And that's really because of the hit they took uh, two or three years ago. So there are structural features that we've got to take your take account of. So I think the disinflationary process is there. Equally, one of the biggest disinflationary factors in the last few years has been China. And mm. China is likely to suffer over the next few months, significant producer price inflation—sorry, de de deflation. And that's something that will feed through uh, in terms of export prices. So I think you've got a significant uh, factor coming through here, which could be a short-term disinflationary move. Now, countering that, and this is why there's a lot of cross-currents, you've got higher oil prices. Now, the higher oil price factor is going to feed in and confuse the mixture. And I think one of the, you know, one of the things that certainly is at the forefront of my mind is to what extent is this rise in oil prices a political decision by MBS and Saudi Arabia to try and put a lot of pressure on President Biden next year or his re-election hopes? Um, and clearly, it's in the interests of uh, the Saudis, who, uh, you know, we know there is uh, uh, very clearly some divide between uh, Biden and MBS. And equally, on the other side, you've got Putin who is clearly eager for oil prices to go up. So I think you've got uh, you know, uh, forces, uh, maybe anti-US forces that want higher oil prices. This is gonna confuse the mixture. But generally what I would say is conclusion, you're gonna get volatile inflation. Is there very much central banks can do about that? I don't really think so. This really comes down to uh, you know, supply side or cost factors and the longer term fiscal implications. Now, the conclusion is, in my view, what central banks have got to do is to follow the policy remit that they've given themselves and keep rates higher for longer. There's no point in sort of you know, moving around quickly, hiking rates and then cutting them back when the economy crashes. Just keep rates up at a level, a higher threshold, and then you will constrain longer term inflation forces to some extent. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Michael, since we have a guest from the United Kingdom present at the uh, Real Vision Daily Briefing today, I'd like to spend the last five minutes before we move to the Real Vision platform exclusively discussing the UK case and whether we can use it as sort of a gauge for global trends. And this morning, UK time, we received the inflation report from the UK. The first positive report, in my humble opinion, in quite a while, 
um, showing that services inflation is no longer there, at least on a monthly basis. Uh, so for now, these inflation trends are actually in place in the UK economy. And to a certain extent, I consider the UK economy like a live laboratory of uh, supply chain constraints, protectionism, um, everything related to the Brexit uh, and, and, and all those mechanisms. So Michael, inflation in the UK, you've been at the forefront of inflation um, in a negative sense with very high prints. Mm -hmm. But maybe inflation is actually disappearing in the UK now. What do you make of inflation in the UK as you see it with boots on the ground? Well, I think the, the, the answer is that, you know, I would agree 100% with what you're saying. Um, as long as I've been in these markets, uh, the UK has been the most inflation-prone economy of any of the majors, okay? Um, it, if you get an inflation shock, the UK always comes out of this worst uh, for whatever reason, but that, that's the reality. And I think what you're seeing now is the unwind of that. So the fact that the UK is seeing inflation pressures ebb quite quickly is a reassuring sign that I think one can extrapolate globally and saying that a lot of this inflation shock is now behind us. And that, that's definitely my view. So I think what you've got, as I tried to outline just, just a second ago, is you've got a lot of cross-currents in the inflation mix. That suggests to me that you're going to see volatility in inflation. I don't think you're necessarily going to see uh, a higher average level of inflation unless these fiscal problems begin to emerge. Now, as far as I can see, looking forward in the medium term, uh, you know, it's very difficult to get out of those. So you'd have to argue that monetary inflation, which is a key component of high street inflation, becomes a major force in terms of pushing prices up uh, in the medium term. I think that that's just the reality. I think you know, when you come down to the other element of UK policy, what are they going to do on interest rates? I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, it's such a muddle in terms of what the, uh, the Monetary Policy Committee is saying and thinking and whatever. I haven't the faintest idea what they'll do. I don't think it really matters at the end of the day. But, you know, uh, it really is a it's an embarrassing muddle in terms of what they've been doing. The Bank of England will decide on interest rates tomorrow. And um, 24 hours ago, the market was very certain that Bank of England would hike interest rates by another 25 basis points. Now it seems like more of a coin toss after that inflation report from the UK. But let's see. In any case, it seems like we're approaching the quote-unquote pause from Bank of England as well, as was sort of the message given by the Fed Reserve uh, today. In terms of fiscal policy, I'd like your take on uh, on UK fiscal policy as well, Michael. Uh, I saw Liz Truss on parade on social media over the past uh, couple of days. Uh, she obviously left office last year um, after a disastrous uh, stint in office. Uh, with her attempt to push forward a fiscal plan and the markets obviously uh, pushed back on the on, on that plan with that big move in interest rates in the UK, was it in September, October last year? Mm -hmm. So what do you make of UK fiscal policy right now and UK interest rates in relation to the fiscal policy? Well, I think equally, if you if you look at the UK, the UK has been a pointer for many other countries. And you can see that reckless fiscal policies in the context of Britain 12 months ago, caused the bond market, the sovereign bond market, to sell off very aggressively. And what did the central bank do? What did the Bank of England do? It moved with alacrity to essentially bail out the bond market. It switched from a QT policy equivalent to a QE policy overnight. And I think that's that's a, a clear message that one has to sort of, uh, uh, as I say, use globally and say that if there are problems in the sovereign bond markets, 
uh, central banks and treasury ministries will actually use all the tools they've got to try and do things. And I think you can see that in the in the US as well. I mean, I've I've labeled these policies uh, that the Fed is operating and the Treasury is operating, you know, first of all, from the Fed, uh, not, not QE, QE. In other words, they're disguising that. And what you've got in the in the case of the Treasury in the US, you've got not yield curve control, yield curve control. So they'll be denying it. But actually, there's a lot of manipulation of the term structure going on for various measures. So I think that, all, that, that what we're seeing is the, the if you like, the, the monetary authority, the broad monetary authority, uh, reading that as the Treasury and the Fed or the Central Bank and the Finance Ministry are getting more and more control over markets. And that's basically what is needed. They have to try and, try and create, above all, stability. And I think that comes foremost above the inflation remit. Now, they may not admit that, but I think that that's what they're basically doing. It's all about financial stability. And you look at the, you know, look at the US, good example. I would be uh, I would be staggered if the Federal Reserve and not Federal Reserve officials are not looking closely at U.S. banks and U.S. regional banks. Uh, I think they're there on the ground and they're making sure this is a stable. These are stable entities. It makes a ton of sense, Michael. Before we move exclusively to the Real Vision platform, I'll allow you to make your best guess on the. Monetary Policy uh, Commission decision tomorrow in the UK. Do you think they will hike interest rates, Michael? Yes or no, and why? <laughs> well, I think that what they'll do is probably more likely hold rates where they are. There may be a small rate increase, but I think that would be that would be cosmetic. I think what they really like to do is to reinforce the message that the Federal Reserve has has has, has just delivered. Uh, what they want is higher for longer, uh, and I can't really see the reason. Uh, why they would want to hike rates and maybe push sterling up because you know what you've got in the coming year is an election in the UK and one of the easiest ways to get growth up is to allow sterling to be soft so I wouldn't think they want a particularly uh, strong level of sterling right now uh, particularly given the background that inflation is probably coming down anyway so uh, all in all I would say my best guess would be no change but you know at the end of the day what I you know I'm still very much of the view that we're probably globally near the rate peak or almost at the rate peak uh the cycle is going to be you know elevated but it's probably yeah as i say it's at a peak but what you really got to look at is the liquidity background and liquidity in my view is going up we're at the trough of the liquidity cycle the liquidity cycle is uh, is moving up to a peak probably around the end of 2025 so whereas investors have had you know in many cases the wind in their face for much of the last, or much of 2022 and a bit of 2021, what they've been having for the last 12 months is the wind behind them, and that wind is picking up. That is a lovely conclusion, uh, and it wraps up the first half of the daily briefing. We're going to continue this conversation on liquidity, Michael, on the Real Vision platform. If you're not a member yet out there, We've just opened back up for new members and uh, just in time for the new platform launch. Uh, to celebrate this new platform launch, um, we have an offer of one month of the Essential Real Vision membership for just 20.14 in honor of our founding year 2014. So go to realvision forward slash crash or boom to sign up to this offer. When you join us on this journey, you'll also be skipping the queue to get access to the new platform when it is launched.